listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. My name is Tim Parati. I am the Equity Research Product Manager in the United States for BMO, and I am joined by Joel Jackson, who covers chemicals and agricultural products for BMO. Uh, We're going to run through Joel's coverage. We're going to start with lithium. We're going to talk about uh, the seed names. We'll talk about the fertilizers, the ag inputs, and then we will finish talking about a deep dive research report that Joel just put out uh, on digital agriculture. So on lithium, why don't we start there? And we can cover both the demand and supply side, but why don't we start with what's most extraordinary in lithium, and that is the demand side, Joel. Thanks, Tim. Hi, everybody. Uh, absolutely, we've seen electric vehicles become a very exciting topic the last few years. We're seeing very strong EV penetration rates in China and Europe, and that's really leading to a lot of excitement around lithium. And obviously, we've seen some lithium stock price recovery uh, has been very strong the last six months. And, you know, right now with EV demand, you know, maybe pushing into double digit penetration rates uh, into the second half of the decade globally, and you know, we could see lithium demand growing 20% a year or even sub 20%, but around 20% a year. And, and that's, even though we're going to get a lot of supply coming on too, this is going to lead to a lot of excitement in the space. And, and, and that's what it's really captured investors. In our core view is that lithium demand through the EV industry really will be stronger uh, than supply, than supply additions. Yeah, I I think that we look at uh, supply and demand in different kind of buckets of years. So we see in 2021, for sure, that demand is outstripping supply. Into 22, we're going to get a big supply response. And then we see it, you know, pretty balanced. Could we see some, some surpluses? You know, in the middle of the decade, we could, depending on how demand plays out, but we do think that we'll go into deficit by the end of the decade. And so we will need some more lithium projects to be financed and by the end of the decade. Has it been surprising to you with, with the massive success of Tesla, a name we don't cover, but where their production, they're, they're selling every car that they can make. And now that we see with Volkswagen and with Ford in the United States, they're selling every EV car that you can make. Are you surprised that the expectations on the demand side aren't even more ebullient than they are? I think that uh, it takes time. Like, there's a lot of chicken and egg scenarios here around charging stations, models that car companies actually put out, um, getting the battery technology and the feature right, features right to incentivize customers. It, it takes time. So, you know, we're really starting to hit, you know, a good part of the hockey stick in, 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 in places like China and Europe. North America is behind. But no, I, I think it's right. I, I, I think that we're, you know, as the next years come on, you'll see a lot more car models out there that the average person may actually want to buy. And so as that happens, we'll get much better inflection. But I think it's it's going pretty well. And um, yeah, you know, you, you could see it all inflect quicker, if, especially if North Americans really start adopting EV like some of their counterparts in other parts of the world. Well, there's no, there's no lack of capital chasing the space, that's for sure. Uh, let's talk about the demand side quickly. Uh, you know, if you look b- years back, there were real issues with growing 
uh, the supply side uh, with spodumene and so forth. Could you talk about how you think the companies that you cover, uh, the success that they'll have ramping supply? And do you think that some of those issues uh, that we saw in the past are, are behind these companies? Yeah, you've really got two sources of supply. There's a couple other ones, but really it is you're either getting lithium feedstock out of hard rock spodumene mines in Western Australia, or you're getting out of brine, so underground solars or underground brine, brine pools in basically Chile and Argentina. And again, some other exceptions, but small outside of that. So I, I think we really saw a very strong ramp up of new spodumene supply in Australia, and that's going to be where you're going to see a lot of that come on in the next bunch of years, really out of Australia. And then we've got some brine projects coming in, in Argentina and Chile too. And those brine projects are harder to come on. I think history has shown bringing on these brine-based operations in, in, in the desert, up in the Andes, it takes some time to figure it all out, especially new operations, get it all right, get the impurities right, and make battery-grade product. But these mines in Australia have tended to come on a bit quicker. So look, we're always going to have issues bringing on new supply in any kind of commodity. I don't, I don't see that being anything different. But there's so much supply coming on and so many projects being chased that I imagine it's all going to work out eventually in the end. And we've seen that companies usually get it right, even takes them a bit longer to, to get the right setup. You know, one thing that I think we're seeing a shift about is historically, the spodumene was all getting upgraded to lithium chemicals inside China. And now we're seeing a push to build more conversion plants in Australia or elsewhere to reduce the dependence on lithium chemical production to China for, for China. And then just quickly, the last thing on supply and demand is the, the, the technology will evolve. And I know that there's a, a lot of effort to try to take cobalt and other um, very expensive heavy metals out of the batteries. Are, are, there, are there any near-term or even longer-term technology risks that you see that would truncate or minimize the, the demand for lithium? Yeah, it's true. You're seeing a lot of cathode technology changes, you know, like you said, depending on, it's really about what kind of car do you want? Do you want a car that's safe? Do you want a car that's maybe not as safe, but can hit higher range or more time you could drive the car without requiring a charge? To do that, you may have to sacrifice on safety. Um, so, you know, it's also about the cost of the battery and all these different things. So definitely lots of different cathode makers in the battery space making different cathodes. But the lithium content in the different cathodes changes a little bit but it's not overly dramatic as, say, a cobalt. Um, and, and we're definitely seeing in China a push to kind of safer cars, maybe lower maybe lower range. In Europe and North America, it's, it's, it's maybe higher range and a little bit not as safe. And But the, really the lithium content in those different cathodes changes a little bit, but it's not overly dramatic. And, and after that, the next technological revolution will probably solid-state batteries no, we don't see that really being a big deal until much later this decade, possibly even next decade. And the amount of lithium that might go in a solid-state battery versus the current iteration of batteries, again, it's not that dramatic a difference. All right, let's move on to seeds. You've um, done a tremendous amount of work this year and last year uh, on the two major uh, global seed players. Can you just talk about uh, why don't we first talk about the tide that could raise all boats here, which is long-term pricing. Right. So we cover a lot of crop input names, including several seed players. And, you know, we've been adamant that the seed and chem crop chemical producers were looking, you know, pretty strong here versus some of the more commodity fertilizer producers. And 
Certainly what's lifted the tide has been higher crop prices. A year ago to this day, right, in March of 2020, there were concerns that no one was going to drive their cars anymore because of COVID restrictions. Ethanol demand was going to go down and people were really nervous with how much corn was going to build up in inventory. Now we flash forward to now and we're looking at eight-year highs in crop prices. This has been led by China. China has been tight on grains. They're depleting their state reserves. This is because they were building their herds after African swine fever, and, and then they had bad weather and bad yields last year. So this new paradigm of China being tight grains has led to some of the highest crop prices we've seen in years and is really leading to higher farmer profitability after years and years of pretty marginal farmer profits. And this is definitely leading you know, to be a better dynamic. What has lagged in this lower crop price environment has been seed pricing. And now we're seeing seed pricing start to rebound. And, you know, we look at the major players in seeds, Bayer and Corteva. So Bayer is who bought Monsanto some years ago. And these are the two largest players. And we're seeing, you know, Corteva take some share now from Bayer. Corteva's rolling out new seed trade technologies and soybeans. They're taking share from Bayer. They're also winning some adjacent businesses in other seed technologies and in chemicals because they're taking back some share in trades. And we've not seen anything like this in 30 years. Bayer, Monsanto Bayer has dominated the trade space since the 90s. And, and this has led us to be quite positive on Corteva last year and this year. In, in this high crop price environment that you've talked about, can you just give us an idea of the return on investment for farmers to pay up for the, you know, the most technologically sophisticated, the newest technologies that, that Corteva offers? Yeah, I mean, these farmers in the U.S. Midwest are break even for the last many years. Maybe made a little, maybe didn't make a little. Um, boosted by different subsidy programs from Obama and Trump administrations, now Biden, and now we're talking about farmers making a hundred bucks an acre, two hundred dollars an acre. It's certainly a lot more ability now to pay for seeds, and and so you know when we've got lower crop prices, seed prices may be up on average every year, one percent a year. Now we're kind of getting into the range of two, three percent, and maybe even three or four, five percent for some historical context. A decade ago, when crop prices were were high, like this, even higher, you know, Monsanto and, and, and Dupont, which is now basically Bayer and Corteva, they were getting five, six, seven percent average seed price increases, and that became again one percent for several years. Now we're back to getting at least half of that. So certainly, it, it's a big driver. You know, higher farm profits, farmers. Are willing to pay up because they want to maximize yield, and it's 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 higher yield, and it's also is it, have we gotten there yet in terms of drought resistant seed, uh, pest resistant seed? I mean, are, are there still step changes in, in improvement uh, in seed technologies, and and do you think there are there is still an inflection higher in the future uh, as to what uh, kind of yields and drought protection these companies can offer? Certainly. A lot of people probably underestimate how great the seed genetics are, the uh, GMO seed genetics. I don't think it's a step change. We have consistently seen, you know, let's say in corn, corn yields in the U.S. go up, trend yield go up a percent a year, year after year after year after year for, for decades. And that trend is consistently kept going up. And, you know, maybe where we're seeing new innovation is in South America, in soybeans, where... Now, for several years, Bayer, so Monsanto, has put into their seeds insect protection. So they have to, instead of having to spray the beans several times a season with insecticides, there's insect protection here in the seeds. So we're definitely seeing that. 
But I definitely think that these seeds have gotten stronger and stronger, more resistant to the droughts, more resistant to the floods, more resistant to the pests. You know, the, the, the one issue we've seen in, in North America and, and around the world has been growing resistance to herbicides, let's say glyphosate or Roundup. And so the, the big push by these seed players has been to now make the seeds tolerant of other herbicides so that you can now use other herbicides such as a 2,4-D or Dicamba or glufosinate along with glyphosate to try to overcome the glyphosate resistance problem because nothing threatens a plant like another plant, in this case, a weed. All right, why don't we move on to uh, how farmers are feeling right now? You, you, we've talked a little bit about farmer economics being stronger. Uh, what are the implications for fertilizers and, and what, what are the inputs that you think uh, where you are most bullish and where are you maybe less sanguine? Definitely seen some strong increase in fertilizer prices over the last year. It's been most noticeable in phosphate. We've seen phosphate prices go up to well above mid-cycle. We've now seen nitrogen prices during their seasonal peaks hit their highest peaks in eight years. And, and they're now, uh, peaks are about $100 a ton higher than they've been in the last several years. And for potash, at least in North America and South America, we've seen prices go above mid-cycle, though outside of South America and North America, the prices are still below mid-cycle. This is really the same idea. Farmer economics are better. Farmers are willing to pay up for fertilizer. And the tide's lifting all boats, including these different fertilizers. Now, these different fertilizers have their own supply-demand dynamics. And what we saw in phosphate over the last year was some reduced production who buy, which was the epicenter, you know, everyone believes for, for COVID. And, and then also some trade issues going on in North America where the U.S. has started to uh, put duties on some imports from other countries. So we've seen, you know, general demand growth, some duty issues, some trade issues, and um, some lower production in China, coupled with some low inventories in Pakistan and India, phosphate has been sort of the, the surprise outperformer the last nine months. Going forward, as we see it, we think that probably nitrogen looks the best. We're concerned that phosphate has peaked as we speak. It will come down. Also, with the trade duties now imposed, we think that uh, non-U.S. producers are going to start putting imports back into the States. And on potash, you know, historically, when South American prices are this far above Asian prices, typically have a retreat in those prices. So we think we're probably, once we get past spring seasonality, due for a retreat. Plus, we're very nervous that BHP, that big mining company, will approve their very large potash project in Saskatchewan in June or July, mid-year. The shafts at that mine have been sunk now over the last decade. They're done. It's about building an above-ground Miller plant. I think that go-no-go decision is a few months away, and we're worried that's going to really hurt sentiment in the stocks. Maybe not hurt the commodity prices, but hurt the stocks. So the demand side is solid across the board. The question is really on the supply side, and it's nitrogen where you see the less, least risk of, of excess supply. Don't have new big capacity coming on in nitrogen. It's generally balanced. And, you know, when you're a nitrogen producer, what's your largest cost? It's gas or coal in China. North American gas prices are, I've said, quite low. And Chinese prices are going up for coal. And that's, you know, the Chinese coal producers for nitrogen being the marginal players. That's creating a lot of good spread opportunities for North American producers. Right. And, and just to remind our listeners, who, who are the top players exposed to nitrogen? You know, for investable liquid names, you're talking about CF Industries, talking about Nutrien and Yara would be your largest names. Joel, let's finish up here talking about your recent in-front report on digital ag and software. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about the conclusions that you came to from that report? 
Yeah, thanks. I mean, it was yeah, the report's called Digital Lag, Powerful Analytics Tools, but so far only table stakes. So these are the big data analytics software tools developed over the past decade by crop input producers, ag equipment makers, and some independents. These tools attempt to create actionable and predictive agronomic intelligence for farmers to manage planting, the field, and yields. John Deere and Bear, the industry leaders in this, it's also others. I think what we have known and what we talked about in this report is there were such big aspirations a decade ago that you know these companies could charge farmers big per acre fees for the tools, but the promise never panned out. No one is really paying much on these acres anymore for these tools. Digilag is clearly not influential right now in driving farmer decisions. And that's because farmers really don't know what to do with these tools. They use them, but they don't necessarily trust them. It takes years to set up good data sets. They're not exactly sure how to judge return on investment for these tools. And there's so many different variables that go into farming, be it weather, pest, luck, human action, product management decisions. And for the, the companies that supply these products, they stopped charging because farmers weren't paying for them, despite investing billions of dollars in these, in, in these tools. They now largely bundle the software with core products and services for free or near free as table stakes and throw-ins. For these crop input suppliers, what they like is, and what they get value from is, by digitizing the farm, they now fully and better understand their own grower customers, and they can use this to help tailor advice to the farmers. This is what you need to plant. This is what you need to do, and it gives them good upsell opportunities. And that's where the value creation really lies for these companies. So we think that it's going to be difficult for these companies to generate discrete profitability. So interesting tools, but so far, they're really just table stakes. All right, Joel. Thank you very much. Uh, that was a tour de force across the, the uh, ag and lithium sectors. Uh, I appreciate you joining me. I appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.